Happy Friday morning, Covenant College. Uh, it's my privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker, Mr. Ron Blue. Uh, in his career, uh, Ron uh, founded a CPA firm that grew to be one of the 50 largest CPA firms uh, in the United States. Um, and they convinced that Christians would better handle their personal finances if they were counseled objectively uh, with the highest technical expertise and from a biblical perspective. Um, he founded a financial uh, planning firm, uh, Ron Blue and Company, now uh, Ron Blue Trust. And that firm grew and now manages over $2 billion in assets uh, for its clients. Um, after retiring from that financial planning firm, uh, he led Kingdom Advisors, an international effort to equip and motivate Christian financial professionals to serve the body of Christ by implementing biblical wisdom um, in their lives and practices, uh, resulting in financial freedom and increased giving by thousands of Christians uh, from around the world. Um, he is also the founder of the Ron Blue Institute, which seeks to develop content uh, based on biblical principles of stewardship that would equip uh, young Christians, high school and college students uh, with a biblical worldview with regard to uh, money. Uh, he is the author of 17 books on personal finance uh, from a biblical perspective. He serves on the board of directors for a number of different uh, organizations and has served on the board of the McClellan Foundation here in Chattanooga. Um, he and his wife Judy uh, live in Atlanta. They have five children and 13 grandchildren. When he leaves us today, he is going to babysit grandchildren in Texas. Um, Ron is widely recognized as one of the leading thinkers in the world on biblical principles of stewardship and generosity of how we as Christians ought to think about money. And so we're thrilled to have him with us today. I would ask that you guys please give him a warm Scott's welcome, Mr. Ron Blue. Well, with all that applause, why don't we just close in prayer? <laughs> that way I don't have to disappoint anybody. Uh, I'll have to correct Derek on one thing, and that is I've written one book 20 times. Once you write one, you can keep writing the same thing, just change the cover, change the title. <laughs> I asked what my job was today, and I was told that I am the principal speaker. So I'm a money guy, and principal and money go together. So I looked up the word principal, and this is what I found, that it's what's left when all the interest is gone. <laughs> well, I am absolutely delighted to speak to college students. I have five grandchildren in college right now. Fortunately, I trained their parents to pay for college education. Uh, otherwise, I would be a very poor person. I also figured out at one point that I had paid for, in private school and college, 60 years of private school education, and that's why I'm still working at age 75. Uh, as I thought about speaking to you today, uh, I thought that this kind of depicts, if you will, money. It's confusing. There's a lot of pieces to it. It's like a puzzle. How do you put it together? And what I'd like to do today is to give you a framework, not on money decisions, but how to think about money, because how you think about money is how you'll act with money. So I'm 
what I'm trying to do is to get you to think about money in a biblical way. The Bible has more to say about money than any other topic. It has, uh, there's 2,350 verses in the Bible dealing with money and money management. Two-thirds of Jesus' parables deal with money in one way or another. There's more said about money than heaven and hell combined and prayer and faith. And there's a very good reason for that. And the reason for that is that money is the way that you work out your spirituality. God gives us resources and we work out our values, our priorities, our spiritual beliefs through our checkbooks. Checkbooks are also what I have found to be a terrific sense of conflict between husbands and wives. So I'm just telling you this before you get married, that when uh, my pastor said it this way, he said, I've educated my, uh, or I paid for my, kid, my son's graduation, I didn't realize he was going to marry into debt, which changed a lot of things. Uh, and here's what happens with money, is that we all were raised differently, we uh, have listened to uh, peers differently, we believe certain things, and so every one of us approaches the money conversation uniquely, but the reality is that we approach life uniquely also, and money is just one aspect of that life. But what we would like to say is that at the end of the day, I've put the pieces together and I've created a picture of my life. And that's what I really want to do is to kind of give you a framework for thinking about money so that you can uh, create that picture. This is John Steinbeck had written this to somebody named Adley Stevenson. You probably haven't heard of either one of them. But John Steinbeck was an author. Adley Stevenson was uh, ambassador to the UN. Twice he ran for president. And this was a uh, piece of a letter that he had written to Adley Stevenson, and he was bemoaning materialism when he said this. And this was in 1959, so almost 60 years ago. He said, a strange species we are, we can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. And if I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. How many of you have even heard a sermon on greed? I haven't, and I've been around for a while. We don't talk about greed anymore. But greed is a, and I'm not here to preach on greed, but I will say that greed, which basically says I want something I don't have, is throughout the Bible. And that was written when I was a senior in high school in Lafayette, Indiana, which if I was in Georgia, it would be Lafayette, Georgia, but it really is Lafayette. Okay, it was General Lafayette. It was not General Lafayette. I'm just giving you a little bit of a history lesson there. My kids and I have had a conversation about that. Every time we go home on vacation from Atlanta, we go by Lafayette to get to Lafayette. And one time we had the argument, is it Lafayette or Lafayette? And I said, well, when we get to Indiana, I'm going to pull over when we get to Lafayette, and we're going to ask somebody how you pronounce it. So we pulled into a Burger King. And uh, I got my five kids and my wife and went up and the young lady that was helping us. I said, ma'am, can you tell us real slow, where are we? She said, okay, Burger King. <laughs> you know what, that's not a true story, but everybody laughs. <laughs> I've learned that. <laughs> 
You know what, I, have, I used to tell that all the time. I haven't told it for 20 years until this morning and today, and it worked because I was coming by Lafayette, so I thought of it. Um, I want to talk just a second about the parable of the soils, and I want to get to the explanation and just read it to pull some things out of it. This is the meaning of the parable, Jesus said. The seed is the word of God. The seeds along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. Important word. So they may not believe and be saved. And the seeds on the rock are those who, when they hear, welcome the word with joy, having no root, those believe for a while and depart in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life. Worries, riches, and pleasures of life. I think that's what John Steinbeck was talking about. Now, he was, I don't believe he was a believer. But that's the seed that fell among the thorny, on the thorny ground. And the reality is, I know that you're going to be entering the world of mammon. The King James Bible calls it, you can serve either God or money, but not both. And that's the choice that you're going to be confronted with, and you're going to hear 3,000 advertisements a day telling you that money will solve all of your needs of life. And I want to just in a few minutes give you a few things to think about so that I challenge that particular thought. But the seed and the good ground, these are the ones who having heard the word, again heard, with an honest and good heart, hold on to it and endure bearing fruit. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the good soil. This is a picture of a home on Galveston Island. And this was after Hurricane Ike, which was a few years ago. And as you can see, the home uh, has been damaged. There's a lot of damage around it. And these were people that had built this home, and they had been through a hurricane before, and so they built a hurricane-proof home. This is another picture of that. That was the only home standing on Galveston Island after the hurricane. They had experienced the hurricanes before, and so they built a hurricane-proof home. That's exactly what it says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. The person who builds his house on the sand, when the winds come and the rains come, it will fall. Those who build their house on the solid rock of God's Word, the house will stand. So if you, you will face the hurricanes of life, loss of jobs, illness, uh, many, many things will come. And as we saw, hurricanes have come recently, and they just wipe everything out. Those are the hurricanes of life, and there's nothing you can do about it. But you can follow God's Word when it comes to money and money management, and you will be just like these people in that you may experience damage, but you will survive the hurricanes of life when it comes to financial. I think that God has given me, uh, I started on Wall Street uh, in... Uh, 1967, 50 years ago, 50 years ago uh, last month. Uh, and I spent three years on Wall Street, and then I started a financial or a CPA firm, as Derek mentioned, uh, and helped people on Main Street. So I went from Wall Street to Main Street, and then I started a financial planning firm, and I counseled 
thousands and thousands of people. I have written a bunch of books, but I've answered thousands and thousands of questions uh, that have come up. Now, I have the language of Wall Street, but I also have the language of the Bible. And Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, said that when he was a, a theology professor, he had the language of the Bible. Then he became a pastor, and he had the language of the world. He said he realized that his job was to put those two together in a message that people could read and understand in today's language. And I realized when I read that, that that's what God has done with my life. It was not by design. You only see what God has done when you look back and you say, wow, I never would have done that, never could have seen that, except what God did. I would have never anticipated, uh, since I flunked out of college twice, speaking to college students, I did get back in and I did get, uh, eventually got a graduate degree, but uh, I had to four point my last year and a half after I got married in order to raise my cum to two point so that I could go on to graduate school and I got a four point in graduate school and the recruiter said, what happened? And I said, I got married. <laughs> it changes everything. So if we can put the two languages together, I would call that financial wisdom. The language of Wall Street and the language of the Bible will give you financial wisdom. You don't hear promises of financial wisdom. You hear promises of financial peace, financial independence, financial security, and so forth. But you never hear about financial wisdom. And wisdom is the skill of living your life well. And it's something that is dynamic. It's appropriate for the moment. So I'm telling you right now this. I believe, and I, in fact, I could change that. I know that a biblical approach to personal finance is the only rational approach to money management, and it works at all times for every person in every circumstance of life. Now, that's a strong, strong statement, but I've, I've lived it. I've proved it. And I'm 75 years old, and you can't argue with me anymore. <laughs> you can disagree with me, but you can't argue with me. So if you go away with nothing else, understand that somebody who's been in the financial world, who's been in the Christian world, says this. And we've got 8,000 clients giving away a billion dollars a year right now out of Ronald Blue & Company. There is terrific freedom being experienced by people. Um, I'm going to skip that video that I had, even though it's good. I'm going to come back to the slide, because what I want is I want to, if, if you have a puzzle, what's the first thing you do? Find what? Corner pieces. We find the corner pieces. So let's find the corner pieces of finance before we fill in the rest of it. So this is the framework. This is like putting a puzzle together. And the first piece, the first corner is this. It's the heart. And it says this, behavior always follows what you believe. So you will work out your behavior according to your belief system. That's why a biblical worldview to life is so important because you'll work out everything based upon that belief. And you're at a school, you're very fortunate, where you're getting a biblical worldview approach to life. That's the beginning point. Secondly is that what I would call financial health. And there's only five things you can do with money. This is going to be really simple. Everything begins with the heart. There's only five things you can do with money. And there are only five principles, 
habits that you need to adopt to run your life financially. I'm going to cover those in just a second. And lastly, the only way you can have hope when it comes to finances is having margin in your finances. In other words, it's living, beyond, living less than your means, not living beyond your means. When you have margin, when you have excess, when you have savings, those people that built that house had prepared for the future. The American message today is you deserve a break today. You only go around in life once, so get all the gusto you have. In other words, spend everything that you bring in because you deserve it. And that, of course, is a lie. This is a picture. I was in Africa uh, on a mission trip. And we were looking down, there were eight of us, and we were looking down on a mud hut. This is not the actual mud hut, but it's similar. And we were visiting a pastor about four hours outside of Nairobi. And I asked this pastor, we were talking about evangelism, I said, what is the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel in this part of the world? Now, we're way outside Nairobi. He was living in a hut like that. And I would have thought he would have said communication or transportation or money or tribalism, which was rampant uh, there at that particular point in time, but he didn't. I want you to hear what he said. The greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel in this part of the world is materialism. He lived in a mud hut. I thought materialism was indigenous to America. He said, and he, I said, you're going to have to explain this to me. He said, if a man has a mud hut, he wants a stone hut. If he's got a thatch roof, he wants a metal roof. If he's got one acre, he wants two acres. If he's got one cow, he wants two cows. What's the point? Materialism is a disease of the heart. It has nothing to do with money and has nothing to do with more or less. It is something in my heart that's not right. And any of us can experience it. It doesn't make any difference whether we have a little bit or a lot. But everything begins with the heart. What do you believe and really believe? Let's look at the heart a second. It says in the Bible, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It doesn't say where your heart is, that's where you'll put your treasure. It says where your treasure is, that's where you'll put your heart. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19, he said, Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. It's really interesting, and think about this, that we tend to think of that verse as commanding me to give, if you will. Give, put it in heaven. And I, I, I wrote to Randy Alcorn recently, and I said, Randy, it's interesting to me that that's not about giving that verse, it's about saving. So if I save, if I think of the giving that I do as in effect saving, it changes the paradigm. Because I tend to think that giving is releasing things, whereas what, it, what Jesus is saying, no, it's really not. It's really saving. It also says in my translation of the Bible, you cannot be slaves of God and money. Now think about this. I'm going to be a slave and I've got one of two choices. And that's what the scripture says. I'm going to be a slave of God or I'm going to be a slave of money. 
And what that means is that God, the God of money, the God of mammon promises that I can have security and significance and success if I have enough. The true God says, put your hope in Jesus and you've got eternity that gives you security, significance, and success. That's the choice. And that's why it's the only place in the Bible where you've got that literal choice of choosing between God and something else. God and money, because we know that money grabs the heart. It's interesting, 85% of pastors never ever talk about money, and yet it's the most common topic in the Bible. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't have time to go into those right now, and that's not of concern to you anyway. So here's the question that you have to answer. Who owns it? Because if God owns it, then everything that I have, I hold with an open hand. Meaning that he can put in what he wants to and he can take out whatever he wants to also. Meaning that if he owns it, every decision I make is a spiritual decision when it comes to money. And here's what happens. When I live like this, I'm living in freedom. When I close my hands on what God has entrusted me with, I've lost control. I think I'm in control, but now it controls me. The only way to experience freedom is, to, is with an open hand. So, let's look at the second piece of the puzzle, if you will. Health, the five uses of money. There's only five uses of money. Live, give, oh, grow. You say, well, that's four. Well, there's two O's. Let me show you. And it's like this. It's like a pie. I spend money to live. I spend money to give. I spend money that I owe on debt. I spend money that I owe on taxes. And I spend money to grow. Those are the only five things I can do with money. That's it. So everybody has a pie. And how you want to split the pie is always the choice that you get to make. But whenever you take one piece and change that piece, it impacts the other four. This, is, this concept is totally foreign in terms of the financial world. We tend to think of money as a series of destinations, but in fact, it's a circle. And all of my life, no matter if I got a billion dollars or I'm deep in debt, these are still the only five things that I can do with money. And God owns it all. So, he is the one that I, when I spend money to live. For example, I tell people, you know, it's no more spiritual to take a vacation than it is to tithe. Why? Because I'm using God's money to accomplish a God-given purpose. I did not say don't tithe, so don't go away thinking that. I just said it's no more spiritual to tithe than it is to take a vacation. Because how do I spend my vacation? Building memories. What about sending five kids to school and college? I'm using God's money to accomplish God's purpose, which is what your parents and grandparents and so forth are doing. Incidentally, I'll say this also, just so I get it said, you can never borrow your way to prosperity because debt always mortgages the future. Uh, and I wrote a whole book on that, so I won't go into it. Let's look at the third piece, habits. There's five principles of money management. Number one, spend less than you earn. Now, I was counseling with an older couple, uh, Clarence and Vida, a long time ago now. Clarence, and we were talking about their money, and Clarence said, Vida, you're overspending. That's our problem, you're overspending. 
Vida didn't even hesitate. She said, Clarence, you're under-depositing. She didn't have enough. He was not putting enough into her checking. I had another client who they could never balance her checkbook because I found out that the wife, anytime she needed more money, she just added it to her checkbook. She never deposited any money. She just added it to her balance. And we found that out because they kept bouncing checks. But spend less than you earn. That's the key. Secondly, give generously. That's how you break the power of money is giving. Avoid the use of debt because debt always mortgages the future. Plan for financial margin because the hurricanes will come and set long-term goals so that you trade off the short-term and the long-term. I shared that concept uh, at a con congressional hearing. Senator Dodd from Connecticut said, well, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. <laughs> Think about it. If we lived within our income, didn't borrow, had financial margin, we would be okay. So those are the habits. Lastly is the process, building the hope, building the financial margin. And if you look at it this way, there's the, the uh, pie. Spend less than you earn, my life. Give generously. Pay taxes with gratitude because taxes are symptomatic of income and God is the provider of income. Avoid debt because debt mortgages the future and plan for financial margin and set long-term goals. That's it. There's five uses of money and there are five principles and the only way that you have success in your life is to spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, Pay your taxes with gratitude, give generously, and set aside some for the future. What you do is you alter your habits to, to add margin because changing habits to increase margin is the only way to meet long-term goals and align our hearts and hope towards eternity. Now, we call this the margin meter. Some people are struggling, some people are surviving, some people are stable, some people are secure in their finances, and some have surplus. Everybody is someplace on that, what I'll call, margin meter. Now, what I gave you was the framework for financial thinking. Every one of those corner pieces have biblical background behind them. And if you want more, uh, this, we've got a one-page uh, chart, if you will. You can go on this website uh, and download that ronblueinstitute.com forward slash 4h tool let me close with this here's the challenge god says thou shalt have no other gods before me that hasn't changed since old testament times deuteronomy 5 1 where your treasure is there your heart will be also that's a given where your treasure is there your heart will be matthew 6 23 and Jesus is, I love the song that we started with, uh, Jesus is the God of security, which we would like to have. What better security is there than eternal security? I am eternally secure. Money can never buy eternal security. Only Jesus can give security. Money, don't listen to the lie that says money can buy. You cannot accumulate enough to be secure. Secondly, he's the God of significance. You cannot accumulate enough to be significant. Now, 
Uh, I used to fly with somebody on his uh, G4. He was worth billions of dollars. And he told me that people like Bill Gates intimidated him. He was a multi-billionaire. Your significance as a child of God cannot be any greater than that. And Jesus is the God of success. And you have to make the choice. Who are you going to believe? And what's your next step? I hope in 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, that one, that I've encouraged your heart to think there is an answer to what the world promises, and it's what you're getting right here in a Christian education. It will apply for the rest of your life. Shall I close in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for these young men and women that are going into your world to change it, and change it because they're going to carry your principles, your priorities uh, into uh, their lives, into the world. Father, I pray for them. I pray that you would uh, let this word fall on hearts that hear and act on it, uh, as you've pointed out to us uh, in the parable of the soils. Thank you for the privilege of talking to these that uh, are the future of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Praise God from whom all...